السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Okay, apologies for that. I think there was some slight technical issues that we had with the page. So, alhamdulillah, I think we're okay now. Someone uh, just quickly give me a uh, a sound check to make sure it's okay and everything's running fine. And then we can start, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So uh, welcome to another class QP uh, inshallah ta'ala we're going to continue with our tafsir of Surah Al-Balad And just a brief recap uh, for what we did last week When we covered verses uh, 8, 9 and 10 mainly And that, those were the verses in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala After mentioning the way that some people are oblivious of Allah Azza wa Jal's uh, Blessings that he's bestowed upon them and his favours That he has given to them And that they think that they won't be held to account they think that everything that they have gives them some ability to be uh, to, to overcome any other type of adversity, that they are not under the grasp or control of anyone or anything. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then reminds them of those blessings that He bestowed upon them and upon us as well. Allah says, Alam Did we not give to you two eyes by which you can see? And a tongue and two lips. And we mentioned last week the statement of a number of the scholars with tafsir that they that these particular blessings are uh, are highlighted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because of their importance because often it is the way that you receive revelation and guidance you, you do it through your eyes when you see and you read and you comprehend the revelation that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to you or in the time of the Prophet sallallahu that you would see him and that you would re- recognize him and so on as opposed to someone who for example can't hear to not be able to see you can still receive revelation. But if you can't hear, then it is more difficult to do so. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds us of that. And the second blessing is the blessing of being able to speak, to question, to ask, to command, to prohibit, to do all of those things that a person needs to be able to do in order to express themselves and their thoughts. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions these particular blessings that we mentioned, I think, last week, the statement of Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir of how Allah azza wa doesn't just mention the tongue in the in this verse but he also mentions the lips as well and that's because it is the lips that allow you when speaking to uh, to make certain sounds and to form certain words and to express certain letters as well as the wider and more general usage of the lips in terms of drinking and eating and being able to do certain other things and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 10 he says and we guided you to the two paths meaning we made clear for you the two paths and we said that the word najd means a path which is high and above it is something which is high above the ground uh, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions hidayah in this verse a guidance and as we said there are two types of guidance the guidance that is being referred to here is the first type of guidance and that is the guidance of being made aware of the path of being shown the path doesn't necessarily mean the guidance of the the uh, the ability to accept that guidance or the guidance of of success where a person accepts that guidance and takes on board the guidance that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to them. But rather it is the first type of guidance 
and that is the guidance of being shown, right? Being shown the path. Inna hadina sabil, as Allah says in Surah Al-Insan, and we mentioned this verse last week as well. Imma shakiran wa imma kafura. We have guided to them the path, or we have made clear for them, shown them the path, and some of them are grateful, and others are ungrateful. Here Allah Azza wa says, وَهَدِيْنَاهُ النَّجْدِينَ We have given you the ability to see the two paths. The vast majority of the scholars of tafsir, as we mentioned last week, were of the position that the najdeen, the two paths, are the path of good and evil, the path of truth and falsehood, the path of being able to distinguish between right and wrong. And there are some statements of some of the scholars, and it is the minority um, opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, but some of them expressed, and it is one of the positions that has been written from Abdullah ibn Abbas, that refers to the breasts of a mother. That is referring to the child being able to suckle and to be able to feed. And that is something which then gives the child the ability to have strength and to grow and to be able to use those blessings in order to attain guidance. That seems to be the way that some of the scholars explained the, uh, you know, the connection between those two different opinions. And I think from, if my memory serves me correct, Imam al-Shawkani was from amongst the scholars who made that connection between those two statements. However, the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir, they took the position that a najdain refers to the two paths, the path of good and the path of, of evil. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 11 then says, Yet he has not attempted the steep path. And that's the translation of, of uh, Professor Abdul Harim. Uh, Muhsin Khan says, but he has not attempted to pass on the path that is steep, and then in brackets, the path which will lead to goodness and success. Mufti Taqi, yet he did not make his way through the steep course, and Sahih International, but he has not broken through the difficult pass. So this verse uh, has a number of points that we need to stop and to, and to think about. The first of them, uh, just to mention uh, the, the first of them, is the meaning of the word اقتحم أو الاقتحام, which is the, the noun. When Allah says فَلَقْتَحَمَلْ right, What is the meaning of this اقتحام? Now as you can see, the uh, majority of the scholar, the majority of the translators that we read from have translated it as, a, an, uh, has, uh, have translated it as an attempt. Right? He has not attempted, he did not make his way through, he has not broken through. That is the general translation or the general gist of the translation that we have. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Al-Iqtiham al-ramyu bin-nafsi fi shay'i min ghayri rawiyyah. Min ghayri rawiyyah. Al-Iqtiham means to throw yourself into something without any care. Right? It is to completely commit yourself into something. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, Al-Iqtiham means al-dukhuru al-asiru fi makanin aw jama'atin kathirin. It means to enter into a difficult place or amongst a difficult group of people. Maybe there's a big, huge press of people and it's difficult to enter into that. Or it's a place that is difficult to, to enter into. That is the meaning of liqtiham. Ibn Atiyah said, uh, Ibn Atiyah, another said some, uh, something very similar in the meaning of the word liqtiham. It means essentially to throw yourself into something without really consideration for anything else. Or it is to go into something which, and, and the meaning of it means or denotes that there is some type of difficulty attached to it. That you throw yourself in and it's something which is difficult and so you just go head and all body in. Uh, the meaning of the word al-aqaba, falaqtaham al-aqaba, Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala said, aqabatim min al-jabal, 
The aqaba is something which you find in the mountain. And it is the difficult path to climb. It is something which goes uphill, it winds around the mountain. It is, and we're obviously speaking about the linguistic meanings of these words first and foremost. It is something which is difficult to traverse. Al-Shawkani, rahimahullah ta'ala, said something very similar. وَالْعَقَبَةُ فِي الْأَصْلِ أَلْطَرِيقُ الَّتِي فِي الْجَبَلِ سُمِّيَتْ بِذَارِكَ لِسُعُوبَةِ سُلُوكِهَا Al-Aqaba is something which is, in essence, in the Arabic language, it is the path that leads up a mountain. And it is called the Aqaba because it is extremely difficult to traverse. It is a difficult path. And obviously, you're going uphill, you're going into the mountain. The purchase that you have with your feet, the, uh, the grip that you have in terms of having stable footing and so on, isn't so good. And then Imam Shokani says, but here obviously it is being mentioned as a metaphor for those people who need to try to combat their desires, combat the whisperings of shaitan in order to do good deeds and in order to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That desire, that suppressing of desires and the whisperings of shaitan, that ability to persevere, to have diligence and discipline in worshipping Allah azza wa and obeying him is similar in difficulty or the example that is given, it is as difficult as climbing a steep mountain path. Right? A steep mountain path. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, He says, فَلَقْتَحَمَلْ right? فَا فَا The fa here at the beginning is for ta'qib, right? So those people who before, that Allah Azza wa Jalla has spoken about, that don't think that anyone can have any power over them, or that they won't be held to account. They don't use their eyes, they don't use their... Their, their ears, their, their, their eyes or their lips or their tongue and they haven't been able to discern the two paths of truth and falsehood or good and bad then Allah Azza wa says so then let them right? fa. the fa is for uh, something which then occurs the lam here or the lam alif which is the la right, which generally uh, would be translated if you were just to say it as, as negating something as being no that is what the scholars of tafsir will now, or what we will discuss in terms of what the scholars of tafsir say concerning that meaning as it is applied in this verse. Ibn Atiyah rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, and there are two, essentially two positions upon this. The first of them is that it's referring to the meaning of the word being Allah. So the meaning of the word is Allah, right? And the meaning of the word Allah essentially therefore means that why does he not try to traverse the difficult path? Right? Oh, halla, ala, oh, halla. Right? If only, why does he not try? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that Allah azza wa jalla has given us these blessings of being able to, to see, of being able to speak, of having tongues and lips and being able to discern between truth and falsehood. Then why not use them in order to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? That is the first meaning. Why not? The second meaning that you will find amongst the scholars of tafsir and in particular those scholars that, that, that took a, uh, a keen interest and look in terms of the linguistic meaning of the verses, the lam here means they didn't. La bima'na lam. It is to completely negate something and deny it. And so these people never tried, meaning that they had these blessings, but they never used them for anything good. They never used their eyesight to gain guidance. They never used their tongue and their lips to come closer to Allah Azza wa They never used the ability to know and to discern between good and bad and right and wrong and truth and falsehood. They never used any of that in order to come closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They couldn't make the difficult decisions. And no doubt there is an amazing lesson in this verse that shows to us therefore, you know, something which unfortunately many of us as Muslims today have forgotten. And that is that the 
that the verses that speak about this show that inherent within worshipping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there is some difficulty or, or uh, maybe for lack of a better word, there is a, a, a required amount of effort that is needed, a required amount of, of time and effort and diligence that is needed in order to attain that worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to fight against your desires, to fight against the whisperings of shaitan, to sometimes fight against the people around you or what they think and what they say or other things that may uh, other factors that may be in your environment to fight and resist and withstand all of that and instead continue to turn to Allah and worship Him, that is something which is difficult and that's why it is called an aqaba. And we know that to be a basic tenet or, or a basic concept in our religion because the Prophet told us وسلم, in the famous hadith when Allah first or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates paradise and hellfire and He tells Jibreel to go and look at each one of them in their original state. And Jibreel does so and he sees all of the blessings of Jannah with all of its fruits and all of its palaces and everything that Allah has placed within Jannah of blessing and na'im. And then Jibreel looks at the fire with all of its uh, punishment and all of its terrors and all of its uh, all of the things that Allah has prepared therein of extremely painful torment. And he comes back to Allah and he says, Oh Allah, no one will hear about Jannah except they will go into it. And no one will hear about the fire except that they will stay away from it. And then Allah Azza wa Jalla commands that Jannah is surrounded by ease, uh, Jannah is surrounded by difficulty and hardship, and Hawfa is surrounded by ease and temptation. And then Jibreel is commanded to go and look at them again, and he does so. And then he comes back and he says, Oh Allah Azza wa Jalla, I don't think anyone will be able to enter into Jannah. Barely anyone. And I don't think hardly anyone will be saved from the fire. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying the same thing here. Why don't these people or why aren't they able to traverse the good path? Or had they not been able to? Right? And so depending on which of the two tafsirs that you take. The uh, the lahia, <coughs> uh, as we said, as a shokani rahimahullah ta'ala said, that the uh, and Ibn Atiyah and a shokani and many of the scholars of tafsir, rather than going through each one of them, because essentially they say the same thing. Uh, Ash-Shawkani he says concerning these two opinions as to the function of the la in this verse he says the first of them is the position of the scholars or some of the scholars of the Arabic language such as Al-Mubarrid and Abu Ali Al-Farisi and that is that the meaning of the la here means lam it is to completely negate that these people never traverse or they won't be able to traverse the difficult path right as, and that's the majority of the translations that we have. Right? He has not attempted to pass on the path that is steep. He did not make his way through the steep course. He has not attempted the steep path. He has not broken through the difficult pass. That is the position of those scholars. That the meaning of the la here means lam. That they didn't do so. They are unable to do so. And that is the position also that was held by a number of the scholars of tafsir. Most famous from amongst them, Mujahid, rahimahullah ta'ala. And it's the one that therefore many of the scholars of tafsir then chose, it seems like Ibn Kathir and others, they, uh, uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman al-Sa'di and others, rahimahumullah, they kind of chose that position of mujahid and that meaning of the lahia is lam. The second position as we mentioned then is a position that actually what the meaning here of the la is that it's actually a question that is posed, a rhetorical question. Afala or halla iqtahab al-aqaba Why didn't they then Right, if only they had then, and the meaning is it is istifham al-ladhi bi al-inkar. It is still to deny it, 
but it is posed in the form of a question. Why didn't they then use them? Why? And it's a rhetorical question in the sense that those people won't do so. But it is as if the, the question is being asked to show the evil of, that, of what they're doing, that they have all of these blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they choose to ignore them. Right? They choose to turn away from them. And this was the position of some of the scholars of tafsir, including uh, Abu Zaid from the older or the earlier scholars of tafsir. And from the latest scholars of tafsir, it was the position that was then chosen by the likes of Imam al-Qurtubi, rahimahullahu ta'ala. Imam al-Qurtubi says that the meaning of this verse is, فَهَلَّا أَنْفَقَ مَا لَهُ الَّذِي يَزْعُمُ أَنَّهُ أَنْفَقَهُ فِي عَدَاوَةِ مُحَمَّدٍ صلى الله عليه وسلم هَلَّا أَنْفَقَهُ لِاقْتِحَامِ الْعَقَبَةِ فَيَأْمَنْ Why didn't this person spread that money that they claimed that they were spending in order to show enmity to the Prophet وسلم, why not instead spend it in terms of traversing what is more difficult to do and that position that the meaning of the word la actually is halla is a, is a rhetorical kind of question that shows uh, a negation within it was also there for the position of al-Baghawi and it's the one that you will find in Tafsir al-Jalareen as well which shows you, to you therefore that you have uh, that you have a number of uh, of positions, uh, and this is something which is, which is, uh, you know, it is something which you will find in all of the books of Tafsir. Right? It is mentioned in all in all of the books of Tafsir. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, Imam Al-Tabari, rather, Taala, he says that usually when the word La Lam Alif is mentioned, right? Lam Alif is mentioned. Uh, it is repeated for each one of the things that it is mentioned for. So for example, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Al-Qiyamah, فَلَا صَدَّقَ وَلَا صَلَّى This person neither prayed, nor did they give any type of charity. They didn't give charity and they didn't pray. And the la is repeated because each one of them is being negated separately. Right? And uh, similar to it is the verse in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, فَلَا خَوْفٌ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا هُمْ يَحْزَنُونَ There will be neither fear upon them, nor will they despair. Right? So the no Right, or the addition of the la is mentioned here as well. In Imam Tabri rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, but in this verse, it's not done. Allah says, but he doesn't go on to repeat those things. Right, and one of the things that would be repeated is what's going to be mentioned later. Meaning, neither did they free a person from the bondage of slavery, nor did they feed someone, nor did they help a poor person, and so on. And it's as if it's being repeated, but it's not mentioned openly here. And the reason why Imam al-Tabir says, the reason for that is because there is no need to do that here. There is no need to do that here. Because what Allah Azza will then go on to say uh, after these two verses, Allah Azza will then go to explain what Aqaba is. What is the steep path that these people should have traversed? What is it that they should have done? And so because Allah Azza explains the meaning of Aqaba, the negation is not needed over and over again. Rather, what the verses then do is as if the surah, what it does then is it switches context. Because if we take the meaning that the la here is a lam, that it's a negation, these people didn't do so, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they didn't do that. Instead, what it does, it, it subtly changes the context from the negation to actually what they should have done. As if affirming for the people of iman, for the people of belief and so on, that this is what they do instead. So it's as if it's changed the context of speech from those people who aren't doing those things, those people who are negligent of Allah's blessings, those people who disbelieve in them, they're ungrateful for them. It changes the context 
to what the believers do. And that is why Allah then says, after mentioning these traits of the people and what the aqaba is, He says, Allah then goes on to speak about the believers. So it's as if the context changes from addressing the disbelievers and the evil that they do to now speaking about the traits of the believers. And that's why Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says that the la doesn't require a uh, a position of, of or, or the, there is no need or doesn't require the repetition of the la for each one of those things and Allah Azzawajal knows best. And that's why Imam Al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala and, and all of the early scholars you will find generally speaking, you will find that they will they mentioned something very similar in terms of the meaning of this verse فَلَقْتَحَمَ الْعَقَبَ Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala said فَلَمْ يَقْتَحِمَ الْعَقَبَةَ فِي الدُّنْيَا These people didn't take any difficult decisions or didn't take the difficult path within the life of this world. And Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said something very, very similar فَلَقْتَحَمَ الْعَقَبَ إِنَّهَا قَحْمَةٌ شَدِيدَ فَاقْتَحِمُوهَا بِطَاعَةِ اللَّهِ This life is difficult, there are many difficulties and so you should overcome them by worshipping Allah Azza wa Jalla and obeying them. And Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, it is, he also said, and this is a position that you will actually find um, amongst uh, some of the scholars of tafsir. Uh, they, they translated or they made the tafsir or they explained the meaning of the aqaba or iqtaham al-aqaba as it being the fire. So Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, it is said that he said concerning this, an-nar wa dun al-jisr. It is a, uh, the fire or the, the, the bridge that will be placed upon the fire is the aqaba that is being spoken of. And Abu Salih said something very similar, aqabatun bayn al-jannati wa-nar. It is a difficult position or it is a difficult place between paradise and between the half fire. And what is meant by those scholars who translated or made the tafsir of aqaba as being something to do with the fire or a station of the fire or something to do with the fire, as some of them uh, mentioned, it is reported, for example, that Al-Hasan al-Basri said, Al-Aqaba, Jabalun fi Jahannam. It is a mountain within the fire. And the meaning of Allah Azza wa knows best uh, amongst those scholars who made that type of tafsir linking it to the fire of hell is because clearly the person who traverses those difficult things, that difficult path, and what we mean by the difficult path is to go to the path that is obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to do that in a way, as we will see, that is not just doing the minimum, but to do more than what is the minimum. That is where the additional difficulty comes in. For example, a person giving charity can be relatively easy for some people. But to give charity when you yourself fear poverty, as the Prophet said, to give uh, the best type of charity is the one who gives, and you fear poverty for yourself. You don't have enough for your own family, but you're still willing to spend for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is a different level of charity to the person who, alhamdulillah, is very comfortable, they're wealthy, they have plenty of money, and they're giving a percentage of that, however much it may be, to the sake or, or for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's a big difference between those two people. And so likewise, here Allah Azzawajal is saying it is an aqaba. Those scholars who say that it is something that avoids something that is in the fire, meaning by traversing that path, by obeying Allah Azzawajal in that way, you are essentially freeing yourself from the fire. And by failing to do so, you are essentially entering into the fire. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Ibn Zayd, he said, That the meaning of this verse is that why didn't the person choose a path upon which they would have found success and they would have found goodness. And that is why Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, said that the meaning of this verse, 
He said, فَلَمْ يَرْكَبِ الْعَقَبَةِ فَيَقْطَعْهَا وَيَجُوزَهَا This person never took those difficult, uh, or he never traversed the path of those difficult acts of worship, those difficult things that please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they were able therefore to go and do what Allah azawajal wants them to do. Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala, he said the meaning of this verse is, يَدَّعِي إِهْلَاكَ مَالٍ كَثِيرٍ فِي الْفَسَادِ مِنْ مَيْسَرٍ وَخَمْلٍ وَنَحْوِ ذَلِكَ this person is the one who claims that they or they or they spend their money, right? If you take the position of Ibn, Ibn Qayyim, that he means just spending money on things which are frivolous, things which are a waste, things which a person just does. Uh, this person spending it on gambling and on drinking and all sorts of haram. Why did they not spend that money in turning that wealth into a means of goodness and helping those that need it by helping the poor, by helping the needy, by helping and spending upon those people that needed their required help. And that is why we know that wealth is one of those things that can either bring a person closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so it can be a means of good or it can drive a person away further from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and therefore become a means of evil. And so Allah azza wa is saying the aqaba, these aqabas and, and Allah azza wa will now mention in the coming verses what those aqabas are, right? What are those difficult things that this person should have done? What is the steep path that they should have taken? And it is difficult not because it is something which is, uh, you know, which is physically necessarily taxing or something. It is because of the spiritual, because of the iman that is required in order for a person to make those decisions and to take those actions. So for a person to fight their nafs, to fight their soul, to fight their desires, to fight the temptations of the dunya, to fight the whisperings of shaitan, and then go and take and, and, and spend and do that which is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that requires a great deal of patience, it requires a great deal of trust in Allah azza wa jal, it requires a great deal of iman for a person to be able to do that for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. To not be concerned about anything else except the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we have many examples of this within the Quran and within the Sunnah. So those a hadith that we're very familiar with where the companions would come and they would just give everything that they possess or the, the companion who came and gave his garden which was worth a great deal of wealth so that he and he gave it for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal so that he would spend from that which which was beloved to him or the other companion who as we mentioned in one of the in, in one of the surahs that preceded who gave his garden for the garden of another person because he wanted to give it to the poor person who was using that other garden to benefit in some way, one way or another. What are those examples that you have? Abu Dahda, Abu Talha, many of the companions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, even Umar radiallahu an, when he came to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and he said, O Messenger of Allah, the wealth that is from the most beloved wealth to me is the land that I have in Khaybar. Right? That land that I that I took in Khaybar, when the companions went, the Muslims went and they conquered the land of Khaybar, that is from the most beloved of land to me and I wish to give it for the sake of Allah. The Prophet said to him, hold the land for yourself, meaning keep the land, and give charity from its profits. Essentially what it's saying is what we consider now, or what we call now a waqf, where you have the essence of the, or the, or the main thing in, in, within your care and under your custodianship, and what people are benefiting from are the profits that come. So that's essentially what you have today in many projects that are considered to be a waqf. Right? For example, a person has a, a, a hotel, for example, or they have a business, or they have a mall, or they have a shop. And that shop is within their possession in the sense that they control it, 
but they don't benefit anything from the profits. They don't take any money from it. All of the profits after the expenses are paid, all of the profits will go for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is essentially the waqf that the Prophet is saying to Umar radiallahu anhu that that is something which he should do and that is what he did. And other companions such as Abu Talha and others when they would ask the Prophet son of Messenger of Allah, we want to give something for the sake of Allah, he would say to them that is fine, but then what you should do is give it to your close relatives that are needy, right? Those people that are close to you and that are in need, start with them first. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, hamal These people didn't traverse the path that is steep and that is difficult. And then Allah in verse number 12, He says, And what will explain to you what the aqaba is? What is this steep path? And that is the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, but they will be very similar. Mahsin Khan, and what will make you know the path that is steep? And Mufti Taqi, uh, what may let you know what the steep course is and Sahih International and what can make you know what is breaking through the difficult pass. Right? So all of them very similar essentially in terms of their tafsir. And Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala he said the meaning of this verse is What will allow you to know O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa what is the aqaba? Right? What is the aqaba? How is the aqaba to be? Understood, and we mentioned previously the statement of some of the scholars of tafsir and the early scholars of Islam is reported as being one of the statements of Sufyan ibn Uyayna, rahimahullah ta'ala, that the general principle is, and there may be exceptions to this, but the general principle is that when the word or when comes in the Quran, usually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give us the answer to it, and when Allah says, then that will be without an answer. So when Allah says, وَمَا يُدْرِيكَ لَعَلَّ السَّاعَةَ تَكُونُ قَرِيبًا And what will allow you to know? That perhaps the hour is close at hand. But then Allah doesn't answer it. But in verses like this, وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا الْعَقَبَةِ وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا هِيَا All of these verses and, and many others that we've done uh, and inshallah will continue to do throughout the Quran when the word وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ is used, usually Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will then answer that question and he will explain it further. Al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا الْعَقَبَ ذُكِّرَ لَنَا He said, what is the aqaba? He said, we've heard or it has been narrated to us from the narrations that we have that the person who frees another person, meaning from the bondages of slavery, it is as if they are freeing themselves from the fire. Just as they free that person, each and every single limb of that person becomes free after they were in bondage and slavery. Then likewise, this person, the person who sets that person free, who emancipates them, it's as if they are freeing themselves limb by limb from the fire of, of hell. Okay, let me just take a, a couple of the questions that we have, inshallah, before we continue. Uh, our previous surahs have included signs of Allah. What are we supposed to think, reflect on when we see the sun, the sky, and ant? Any question in the heavens and the earth? So this is something which you know each person will probably reflect on something differently. But the thing that joins between all of this or the, or the common denominator between them is that it should make you reflect upon the Creator. So by seeing the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, especially those things in nature that therefore point to the Creator, it is something which should make you marvel at the uh, at, the, uh, at the ability of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and His power, Jalla fi ula. So when you see the amazingness of the heavens and the earth and the sky and the sun and the moon and everything else that you see and the animals and the oceans and the trees and everything else, even 
I would say what the humans do, because what we build as humans, what we accomplish in terms of technology and innovation and everything else, points to the human mind and brain and their ability. And the human mind and the ability of humans to, to think and to process and to, uh, and to innovate and so on, and to, and to construct and accomplish, in essence then turns back to the, creator of Allah, the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? And so that's something which is what we should be reflecting on when we see all of this around us. And that is why Allah Azza often points our, our, our you know, attention towards these things. For example, when he says, أَفَلَا يَنظُرُونَ إِلَى الْإِبِلِ كَيْفَ خُلِقَتْ وَإِلَى السَّمَاءِ كَيْفَ رُفِعَتْ right? Don't they look at the camel, how it was created, and the sky, how it was raised, and the mountains, how they have been made firm and stable, and the earth, how it has been expanded. All of this is something which should make you turn back and then think of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why it is reported that, that from uh, there was a scholar of the past who was blind. But when he read this verse, Do they not see the way that we created the camel? And he's blind, obviously, he can't see. It is said that he went to a camel and he touched it and tried to understand as best he could from touching the camel what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted him to understand. And know that each one of these animals and creations of Allah Azza wa Jalla, you just need to watch a David Attenborough documentary or some other documentary that speaks about nature and wildlife and so on. It is amazing how Allah Azza wa Jalla has created these different creatures and these different animals and how they exist within their own habitats and their own social constructs and in their families and so on. And in their own way that they live, their habitats, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made them amazing, each and every single one of them. All of that points to the creator of the, the creator Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay. Why did Allah create the heavens and the earth? It is solely is it solely for Allah to reward those who do good, punish those who do bad? Is that the sole reason for the creation of the heavens and the earth? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does as he pleases. We know that Allah Azza wa Jalla the sole reason for the creation of humans and jinn is to worship him as Allah tells us in the Quran Wa Maqalaktun but as for other than that, in terms of the heavens and the earth and, and everything else, the sun and the moon, is it simply a means of, of, of us existing in this life or is it a means of something else? Allah Azza wa knows best. And to really, uh, you know, to, to sometimes busy yourself in trying to answer and find the meaning within the answers of these questions isn't necessarily the best use of time. In the sense that knowing it or not knowing the answer to that doesn't really change anything. Once you know your purpose and you know the reason for your creation, my creation, and that is something which Allah Azza wa Jalla has mentioned very clearly and explicitly in the Quran, that is all that you need to know in order to be able to move forward. Everything else, alhamdulillah, if you know or you can arrive at the wisdom and you know the answer, it's good. But if you can't or you don't know or you find that it's difficult to find out or there's not a clear-cut answer, then it's something which diverts you away from what is your essence and what is your need, right? And so that's what we need to worry about in terms of our creation and our purpose upon this life in terms of the purpose of the heavens and the earth and what it's for and not for and what will happen to it after Yom Al-Qiyamah and what happened to it before or what took place on it before the creation of Adam السلام, and all of those other different types of issues that come and stem from that that's not really the most important thing that we need to be uh, concerned about and Allah knows best uh, Sumer is asking I'm a little confused how Aqaba can mean a mountain in the fire or something to do with the fire doesn't seem to fit the context with the subsequent verses which want to explain what Aqaba is. It, it only fits the context in the sense that it becomes a almost like a metaphor in the sense that a person who is able to traverse the Aqaba 
in terms of they free, free the slave and they feed people and so on and so forth, then they're saved from that mountain of the fire. And those people who are unable to progress, that means that they can't reach that level of Iman or they don't have that belief in Allah Azzawajal to spend and to give sadaqah and to worship Him subhanahu wa ta'ala, then those people are the ones that will fall into that fire. And sometimes the scholars of tafsir, they give tafsir in this way, right? They give tafsir in this way, not necessarily in terms of the actual meaning of the verse, but in terms sometimes of its consequence, right? Sometimes of its end product or the end result that will take place as a result of what people do or don't do. And Allah Azzawajal knows best. Okay, so let us continue. In verse 13, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now goes on to explain what is the aqaba. So Allah Azzawajal has said to us in verse 11, These people were unable to traverse the difficult path, unable to take the difficult path. And what will allow you to know what that difficult path is, that steep path? Then Allah Azzawajal will now explain in verses 13 and 14 and, uh, and 15 and so on. Allah Azzawajal will mention them now. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in verse 13, the first of those points or the first of those traits of the aqaba is fakku raqaba. It is to free a slave. It is to free a slave. Now this verse and the verse after it in verse number 14, there are two different ways of reading this verse, two different mean, two different qira'at or two different ways of reciting this verse. The first of them is the one that we're familiar with and that is fakku raqaba aw it'amun Right? And fak and it'am are both nouns. Right? The freeing of a slave and the feeding of a poor person. Right? Those are nouns. That is the reading of the majority of the scholars or the majority of the Qur'a. Then the other reading, which is the reading of Ibn Kathir and Abu Amr al-Basri and al-Kisai, is that they read it in the verb form. So not in the noun form, but in the verb form. So instead of saying fakku raqaba, they say fakka raqaba. Fakka. Fakku is the uh, is the noun. Fakka is the verb. Fakka ya fukku. So fakka is the verb. Fakka raqaba aw ata'ama. Na ita'amun aw ata'ama. Again, changing the word into the verb. Aw ata'ama. So essentially the meaning changes from freeing a slave and feeding a poor person to he freed a slave and he fed a poor person, right? So it becomes the action as opposed to the concept, right? And some of the scholars, especially of the early uh, scholars of tafsir, they said that that is a, uh, that reading that changes it into a verb is something which is also a very strong in terms of its meaning because it's not just a concept because many people can understand the concept of freeing a slave and feeding a person, but it is the actual action and that is why you get the benefit of knowing the qiraat sometimes that it gives you the additional meaning. It's about knowing the concept and understanding its importance and its position, its virtues and its rewards. But more importantly, it's also about doing the action. So as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has combined between the two using those different recitations. Or in the other reading, and as we said, the turning it into a verb is the recitation of Ibn Kathir, Abu Amr al-Basri, and al-Kisai from the seven. And Allah Azza wa knows best. The meaning of the verse, fakku raqabah, the word fakku or fakka, al-Imam al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, it is to free someone from bondage or from imprisonment. Right? 
uh, it is to free someone from bondage or from imprisonment. And so the word fak is to essentially free someone. Hallul qaid. It is to free someone. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says raqaba. And the word raqaba is essentially the meaning of the word, or the literal meaning of the word is your neck. Right? It is to free a neck. Right? And that is because the, as, as Imam Qurtubi says, that in olden times, people who were often imprisoned or they were slaves would often be tied by their neck. Right? They would have a chain or something by their neck or their hands would be tied to their neck or something. There would be something around their neck to show that they are prisoners. And so that is why the wording of the raqaba is being used. But clearly the meaning is that you free the whole person, not just the neck of a person. And that is why Ibn Ashur said, The meaning of the word raqaba means to free the whole person, not just to free their, uh, their neck. But the word neck is used here because it is something which is, uh, especially here, because that is what people would usually be tied around, right? It is what they would usually be the chain or the rope would be tied around their neck. And that is why the word raqaba was used to refer to a slave or to refer to a prisoner, right? as Al-Qurtubi and Ibn Ashur, rahimahumullahu ta'ala, say. The verse Fakku Raqaba speaks about one of the greatest acts of worship that a person can perform. As Imam Al-Tabadi ta'ala, and others said, to the extent that even uh, some of them uh, said, and, and maybe we'll come on to this slightly later, but the position of some of the scholars, such as Imam uh, Al-Qurtubi, as he mentions, is that to free a slave is one of the best forms, if not the best form, of charity. So freeing a slave essentially in the olden days, and remember this is uh, something which uh, you know was very common in certain periods of history where people would be enslaved and they would be in bondage. And essentially what you're doing when, when you're freeing someone is that you're buying their freedom. So you're paying their master or the person that owns them, you're paying them for their freedom. So they would set a price upon that person and then you would pay them and they would go free. And this is something which obviously we find in the earliest uh, stories of Islam, Abu Bakr radiallahu freeing the likes of Bilal radiallahu an at the beginning of Islam. So it's not something which is a, a foreign concept, but it is one of the greatest acts of worship that a person can perform. And that is why when you look at some of the, uh, you know, some of the, the uh, crimes that a person may commit and then expiation for those crimes, you will find that one of the ones that you will often find mentioned in the Quran is the freeing and emancipation of people. Because it is something which is extremely uh, extremely virtuous because you're essentially giving that person their freedom back uh, and that is why in the hadith of Abu Umamat al-Bahili radiyallahu an that is collected in the Tirmidhi where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said whosoever frees another person it will be their own freedom from the fire each limb that they free from that person will be as if they free a limb uh, of their own and whichever man frees two women from the fire, then it's as if they will free themselves from the fire, for each limb from those two women will be a limb of his own. And whichever woman frees another woman from the fire, it's as if she will be freed, uh, sorry, frees another woman from slavery, it's as if she will be freed from the fire, for each of her limbs will be a limb of her own. And that is in At-Tirmidhi, and it is an authentic hadith. And similar to it is the hadith of Al-Bara ibn Azib, radiallahu anhu, and that is collected in a number of works, such as the Muslim Imam Ahmad and Mishkat al-Masabih and others, that the Prophet ﷺ was approached by a Bedouin man. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, teach me something, an action, that if I perform it, I will enter into Jannah. 
So the Prophet said, even though your question is short and, and, and precise, what you ask for is something which is great. Right? So this person is saying, give me one action, I will do it, I will enter into Jannah. The Prophet said that sounds like an easy question, but actually it is something which is extremely difficult. One thing from all of Islam that you will enter into Jannah with. So the Prophet said, Free a person and emancipate a neck. Raqaba and Nasam uses two different types of freeing, two different types or two different words for freeing a person. Nasama, which essentially means a person, and Raqaba, which essentially means a person as well. So the man asks, Awalisa Wahid, are they not the one and the same? The Prophet said, No. The first is that you're the only one to free that person, meaning that you purchase that person fully and you free them. And as for the second one, it is that you help in the freeing of that person, meaning that you give some money and someone else gives some money, and there's a few of you that come together and you free that person. And then the Prophet goes on and he mentions a number of other actions as well that that this person could do. But that is the point of this hadith uh, in the Muslim of Imam Ahmed. The point of these is to show that the freeing of a person, and this is not an expiation of a sin where a person must do so to expiate in order to expiate for something which they have done which is wrong. It is someone who simply goes and frees someone for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They free them for the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in doing so it is one of the greatest things that a person can do. Right? It is one of the greatest actions and, and, and acts of worship that a person can perform. For the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is one of the best forms of sadaqah and charity that a person can give. Shaykh al-Thaymin rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, Fakkur raqaba, freeing a person, has two meanings. The first of them is that you free them from slavery and bondage. In the sense that you go to a person who is a slave and you buy them. And you free them or you help to buy their freedom. Meaning that either you buy them by yourself completely and you free them. Or you help with other people and you uh, you come and you free them together. That's the first type. And the second type is that you free someone who is a prisoner. Meaning that this person has been imprisoned and this essentially means uh, you know, a person who is a prisoner of war. right? Not a person who is a prisoner because they've done, committed a crime and they've been jailed for that crime. And that, that those type of people you don't free because they are there for a valid reason in the Sharia. We're talking about prisoners either because they are unjustly in, in just, in prisoned or they're prisoners of war. The, uh, because often those prisoners of war will be ransomed. So in order to buy them back or buy their freedom, they need to be ransomed. And that also obviously therefore requires wealth. And that's why Shaykh Ta'ala he says that this is essentially another type of fakkur raqaba. And no doubt that if the first one is something which is extremely beloved to Allah, freeing someone who is a slave, the know that freeing someone who is unjustly imprisoned or has been taken as a prisoner of war and needs to be ransomed, it is even greater in that regard. And that is why you will find that some of the scholars of tafsir, even in the olden uh, in times like the tafsir, would speak about the freeing of prisoners. Right? That that's what they're referring to. Uh, and and uh, Shaykh Nuthaymin's teacher, Shaykh Abdurrahman al-Sa'adi, in his tafsir, he said, Fakwa is to free someone who is a slave, and then he goes on to say, and no doubt that if you're freeing a slave, and that is something which is beloved to Allah, to free someone who is unjustly imprisoned or is a prisoner of war, is something which is even more beloved, therefore, because clearly they have been imprisoned for something which, uh, you know, which is, they were trying to do something, and they were imprisoned for that reason. 
And Imam Qurtubi he said that the scholars differed as to what is better, giving sadaqah or freeing a person. And clearly there are different levels of sadaqah and even freeing someone is a type of sadaqah. But he's essentially referring to just general sadaqah. He's talking about even though freeing someone is a type of charity, we're talking about the conventional type of charity where you just feed someone or you help someone. Is it better just to give that type of charity or to free someone? He said that the position of Imam Abu Hanifa ta'ala and the stronger position is that al-itqu afdalu min as-sadaqah. It is better to free someone than to give sadaqah. Right? It is better to free someone than to give sadaqah. And other scholars differ and they said that sadaqah is better to emancipate, better than emancipating or freeing a person. But the position of Imam Abu Hanifa and the one that Imam Qurtubi then also strengthened was that it is to free someone. Because essentially what you're doing is you're purchasing for them their freedom. Because essentially what a slave is, is that they have no ability to own, right? They don't have anything to their name. They don't have the ability to do anything. They can't, they don't have much free will in terms of what it is that they're able to do. To give them back that is something which is amazing. And that is why the Prophet wasallam and those hadith that we mentioned show to you the uh, station and the virtue of that. But the Prophet also told us in a hadith, that a, par- a child will never be able to repay their parent. As we know, right? You're, as a child, you can never repay what your parent does for you. No matter what you do, and no matter how hard you try, no matter what, how, you can't repay the good that they've done for you and towards you by you know, like your mother giving birth to you and looking after you and feeding you and helping you. You can't do that, right? You, there's nothing that you can pay back. And that is why, you know that famous story of Ibn Umar radiallahu anhu when he's making tawaf and there's a man who essentially has his very elderly mother on his back and he's carrying her around making tawaf, right? This is the day before uh, motor scooters and uh, wheelchairs and so on. He's literally carrying her on her back making tawaf. And he says to Ibn Umar, Oh, uh, oh Abdullah, don't you think that I am repaying back my mother now for what uh, you know what she did for me by carrying her around seven times around the Kaaba for tawaf? And Ibn Umar said, No, I don't think that it's enough. It doesn't even equate a single push that she pushed at the time of birth, right? A single, uh, one of those contractions that she had when she was giving birth to you. It's not even equal to that. And that is because of, obviously, the the major honor that Allah has afforded to the rights of the parents. But the Prophet said that a child cannot afford or repay back the favors of their parents unless one of them was to find their parent a slave and they were to buy them and free them, right? They were to buy them and free them. So that is something which a person can repay. For whatever reason, their parent is a slave, they're in bondage, and they purchase their freedom for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? That is something which they're there. They cannot repay their parents in, in that sense. But anyway, that is that is the first of the, the traits or the first of the issues that Allah Azza wa mentions regarding the Aqaba. And there are a number of more that will come, but inshallah we will leave those until next week, bi'ithnillahi ta'ala. So if there are any questions, inshallah we will take them. Otherwise, we will conclude for today. Okay, so inshallah, if there's no questions, then I think we will uh, stop here for today. بارك الله فيكم وصلى الله على نبي محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين وآخر دعوانا الحمد لله رب العالمين